0: Good morning again. As always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Psalm 80? I almost said Matthew. We are not in Matthew this morning. Psalm 80 is where we are this morning. As I already mentioned, this Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent, This season where we focus on and celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. And as I also mentioned, it's not just a time of celebration, it's also a time of waiting. It's a time of tension. And because of that, Advent plays this interesting role in the Christian life, especially when it comes to the time that we live in. In Advent, we look back and we remember the time of waiting and longing in the Old Testament for the coming of Jesus into the world. The Old Testament saints had the promises of God, but they didn't have the vivid reality of His birth, life, death, and resurrection that we have. They looked forward to the coming of Christ. But we live in the time after Jesus has come into the world. 2,000 years ago, He came into this world to save His people from their sin. We know what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. He is the Savior that God promised, the one who would right every wrong and satisfy every need. But the New Testament speaks about Jesus inaugurating or beginning the kingdom. He dealt the death blow to Satan and sin and death But when he ascended back into heaven, he left us in this world that is still fallen. Satan still roams about like a roaring lion. We still have tears and suffering and death. And worst of all, we still live this life having to fight against sin. So even though Jesus brought his kingdom, paid for our sin, and sent his Holy Spirit to live in us, we are still waiting. We're still waiting for the completion of his work. We are still waiting for the eradication of evil, the healing of our bodies, and the ending of our sorrow. In other words, we have already seen the first coming of Jesus in his incarnation, but we are still waiting for his second coming, when he will end this evil age and bring his kingdom in full. This is why the Christian life is a life of rejoicing that Christ has come, but also a life of waiting for Him to come again and complete His work, both in this world and in us. So over these next four weeks of Advent, we're going to look particularly at four Psalms that all have this theme of waiting on the Lord, but especially a theme of longing. Longing for the restoration of what is good and has been lost. These Psalms are set within the exile of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, when He took them out of the promised land. And even though we sit on this side of Jesus' coming, we also join them in that longing. We look around at this world and we see sorrow and pain and evil. We see wars far off and evil on the news, but our own lives are also a picture of this. Maybe your body is beginning to lose its strength. Maybe your spouse or parent died this past year. Maybe in the fight against your sin over this last year, you have more losses than wins. We look around and we look inside and we long for things to be different. For God to put all things right. So as we hear from the Psalms, they're going to do what all of the Scriptures always do. They're going to set our hope on Jesus. He is the answer to your longings. He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. He is the only Savior who can bring forgiveness and healing and hope. But before we look to His Word, let's ask our God for His help. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask now that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills, so that we may hear your word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Psalm 80. To the choir master, according to lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it. And all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. As we look through this psalm today, we're going to ask three questions that draw us to application in our own lives. First, we're going to ask, who is Israel? To understand the setting of this psalm. Second, why are they distressed? And then thirdly, what are they longing for? The psalm begins by crying out to God in the midst of distress. The most important part of the psalm is this refrain that shows up in slightly different ways four times in verses 3, 7, 14, and 19. The first is in verse 3. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. It's obvious that Israel is calling out to the Lord in the midst of distress and trouble. But before we get to that distress, we need to understand the background of who Israel is. Their cry is that God would restore them. And so we have to ask, restore them to what? Verses 8 through 11 give us a snapshot of who Israel is and what God intended for them. Verse 8 says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. But even that reference to coming out of Egypt is at a later point in the story. We need to go back further to really understand this passage and what it means for us and for our distress and our longings. The Bible begins with God creating the heavens and the earth, the sea, the sky, the land, and every creature, plant, and rock that is in them. He created humanity, man and woman, as the pinnacle of His creation. And He put them in the Garden of Eden, this paradise where God Himself dwelt. We know what happened though, don't we? We know that instead of glorifying and enjoying God in this paradise, Adam and Eve sinned. And so their sin brought death and evil and pain into the world. And as a consequence, God drove them out of the garden and out of his presence. But even in doing that, he made a promise to them. A promise that he would one day deal with sin and death and restore them to right relationship with him. When we fast forward a bit, we get to Genesis 12, where God comes to the man Abraham. God blesses Abraham and makes a promise to him a covenant to him and his family that he will be their god and they will be his people but he also tells Abraham the broader purpose of his choosing when he says and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed this was god's purpose he chose one family to be his people so that through them he might bless all the families, all the peoples of the earth. If you remember the story of Abraham, that blessing took a long time to come to fruition. Even after God gave Isaac and Jacob and his 12 sons a famine, led them into the land of Egypt. And in the land of Egypt, they were slaves for 400 years. That's where our psalm picks up in verse 8. The psalmist uses the imagery of a vine to represent Israel, and he summarizes the history of Israel since then in just four verses. Look with me again at verses 8 through 11. He says, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. First, God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. Remember the ten plagues and wonders that He performed. And then He took them through the Red Sea into the wilderness. After 40 years of wandering, He finally brought them into the land that He had promised to Abraham so long ago. He drove out the Canaanite nations who were in it, and He planted Israel there. And then he gave Israel kings and a kingdom, which is pictured as the growing and the spreading of the vine. The vine took deep root and filled the land. Then notice the fact that he begins to talk about this vine and its impact or influence on the nations around it. He says that its shade covered the mountains and the mighty cedar trees. And then he says, it sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. The sea there is the Mediterranean Sea and the river is the Euphrates River. These are the eastern and western borders of the promised land. These are the high points for Israel, probably looking back to the reigns of David and Solomon as kings. Israel was flourishing, growing and spreading, influencing the nations around her. Do you remember what God said the purpose of choosing Israel was? He reminds us and reminds them that it isn't just to be comfortable and happy in the promised land. It wasn't just to accumulate power and wealth. But it was for the blessing of the nations, just as he said to Abraham. This is what Moses says to them in Deuteronomy chapter 4. He says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it? as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Israel was intended to be a witnessing people. God intended for the people around Israel to see her, to see the way she lived according to His laws, and to be in awe of her God. What great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? And what Israel was seeing in her expansion was this purpose finally coming about. Remember the Queen of Sheba coming and marveling at Solomon's wisdom. They were becoming a light to the nations around them. But what happened next? What happened next was the kingdom divided between north and south. And both north and south turned from the Lord. They began worshiping and following the gods of the nations around them. This lasted for hundreds of years until the Lord finally sent these nations to conquer them and take them out of the promised land and into exile. That's the current situation that the psalmist is writing in. They are in the midst of that exile And look at the cries of this people who no longer have the Lord's favor and who are no longer in the midst of His blessing. Verses 12 through 13 ask the question, why? Why then have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. If you go back up to verses 4 through 6 we see a fuller picture of their distress. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Notice the three things that Israel is lamenting. They're lamenting that they've lost their blessing. Their walls are broken down, and their land no longer belongs to them. The wonderful situation God gave to them is gone. But it's not just their blessing. It's also the treatment of the surrounding nations that they lament. These nations were supposed to marvel at Israel and turn to her God. But now they are abusing her and mocking her. But the third thing they lament is the most important. It's the root of all the others. Look at verse 4 with me. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? This isn't just the loss of the land or the mockery of the nations. Israel's God is angry with them. And notice this centers on their relationship. He is angry with their prayers. This is, is the privilege that they had, that they had the ear of the God of the universe turned toward them. That he listened when they cried out to them. And now his anger burns against them. The worst part of the exile was not the loss of nice things in the promised land. It wasn't the mockery of the nations around them. The worst part of the exile was the alienation that Israel had from God. Look again at the refrain in verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. That phrase, let your face shine, comes from the ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. This is not just a picture of God's material blessing or gifts for His people. It is a picture of His loving and affectionate relationship with them. And what the psalmist is recognizing throughout this psalm is that that has gone away. It's not that the Lord no longer loves His people, but His smile and affection have been hidden from them. And what we quickly see is that that is not just an Israel problem. That's a humanity problem. The exile of Israel from the promised land was an echo of the exile of Adam and Eve from the garden. And while it was awful that they had to leave the paradise of the garden, and it was awful that they had to enter a life of suffering and death, the climax of the exile from the garden is that they lost the joyful presence of God. When you ask people you know what is wrong with the world, they'll probably point to suffering, disease and disasters and death. They'll probably also point to evil, even if their understanding of evil isn't a comprehensive one. People abuse the weak and steal from those in need and live lives of selfishness. And those things are awful. Christians agree death and evil and suffering are imposters in this world, not a part of God's good creation. But more important and more fundamental than all of those things is that mankind is alienated from God. Because of sin, we are a people and we live in a world that is alienated from God, estranged from our Creator. God is the source of life and joy and blessing, and we have turned our face from Him. So He has turned His face from us. And you see, this is why all of the proposed solutions to fixing the problems of this world will never work. They're always unsuccessful. Let's educate people, and then maybe we will overcome evil. Let's make stricter rules and punishments, and then maybe we can control sin. Let's make advances in technology and then maybe we can fix suffering and death. All of these solutions are futile and vain because they all miss the real problem. God's face is turned away from us. Our sin, our rebellion against him as king, our rejection of his fatherly kindness has led to his anger at our sin and his turning from us. That is the distress that the psalmist is lamenting here. But the the response of the psalmist and of God's people is not to come up with their own solution. No, their response is to cry out to God. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 and then verses 14 through 19 to see what the psalmist cries out to God to do. Verse 1, he says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, You who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And then skipping down to verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. And for the son whom you made strong for yourself, they have burned it with fire, they have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved it's obvious that their distress is about all the things that have gone wrong. We know from reading our Bible that most of the people of Israel were preoccupied with the physical suffering and the loss of blessing that they had. But in this psalm, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, their prayer and their song focuses on God restoring His loving and caring relationship with them. Notice that even in the way that God is addressed Verse 1, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim. But the main way that we see that the psalmist's concern is for God's love and affection for his people is that almost all of his demands of God are relational. He's asking God to be the father and the shepherd that he promised to be. He says, give ear, which is a way of saying, listen to us. In verse 14, he says, Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine. He's asking God to pay attention to his people. Care for them like you said you would. Come near to us and take care of us. The request for salvation at the end of each refrain shouldn't be taken as some pragmatic demand to fix the situation and get away. Like a kid who leaves the house and only calls his parents when he wants money. No, he says, right before that cry for salvation, let your face shine. And it's this request for God's face to shine where I want us to hone in on. Remember, God's face isn't his physical face. God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. So when the Bible talks about God's face, it's drawing on all the different things we do with our face and then shows us how God is doing those things towards us. And so sometimes Scripture references God's face to talk about God making Himself known to us, Him revealing Himself fully to us. We all get this, that a person's identity is most obviously communicated by their face. That's why we now have facial recognition software. It's why you would say, I thought that was her, but I couldn't tell because I didn't see her face. Showing your face reveals who you are. And this is what God does. Do You remember in Exodus 33, when Moses asks God if he can see his glory, what does God say back to him? He says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. God references his face to talk about revealing his full glory and says that if he did that, it would overwhelm his creatures. But there's another sense that the Bible talks about God's face. It's related to Him revealing Himself, but it's a bit different. Because we don't just use our faces to show ourselves to others. We also use our faces to look at one another. The first instance of the word face in the Bible is actually in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned. Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the face of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Most translations say they hid themselves from the presence of God. In Hebrew, that word presence and face are the same word. So why would Adam and Eve be hiding from God's face? You know when a child does something wrong... And you go to talk to them about it, and they bury their face in their hands. Why do they do that? It's not because they don't want you to see their face. It's so that they don't see your face. They're afraid to see the look and the gaze of condemnation. They're afraid of that knowing look that they did something wrong, and they deserve to be punished. But there's a different look that they can see in your face. It's not a look of condemnation. It's a look of grace or compassion. It's a look that doesn't ignore what they've done wrong, but it pours out grace instead of condemnation. This is the look that the psalmist is talking about when he talks about God's face shining. In his book on the blessing of Numbers 6, author Michael Glodo says that when Aaron the priest says, the Lord make his face to shine upon you, he is declaring the blessing of God's gracious gaze upon his people. That's what the psalmist is longing for most fundamentally. Not a new set of circumstances, not getting more stuff, but having the smile of God upon his people. This is what every one of us longs for most fundamentally. I just mentioned that this is the loss that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. And it's a true loss that comes with sin. Isaiah 59 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you. You may try to ignore that longing by filling it with other things. Maybe the smile and admiration of your boyfriend, or your wife, or your Instagram followers fills that hole for a while. Maybe your success in school or at work or your impressive resume helps you ignore that desire in your soul, but you cannot shut out that desire completely. And there are quiet days, usually without all the noise, that you feel the emptiness. We all long for the smile of God upon us. We all know that our sins have separated us from Him and hidden His face from us but we long for Him to shine His face on us and save us from our condemnation. The good news of the gospel is that God has caused His face to shine shine on us in ways that we never would have imagined. Our sins caused alienation from God. But Zechariah's song in Luke 1 rejoices in the coming of Jesus and says, "'Blessed be the Lord God of Israel.'" for He has visited and redeemed His people. Then He describes that visit by saying that He will give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. We know that our sin has brought the righteous anger of God. But the angels sang out at the coming of Jesus, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. John 1 tells us that instead of hiding his face, the Son of God has come to dwell among us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, We have all received grace upon grace. Paul summarizes the coming of Jesus by saying in 2 Corinthians 4, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The psalmist cried out in verse 14, Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see have regard for this vine. Jesus Christ is the resounding answer to that cry. Jesus is not just a nice, warm story at Christmas time. He isn't just a nice guy who taught us to love one another. No, Jesus is the way that God is bringing restoration to this broken world and to your broken life. And this brings us right back to the tension of Advent, the tension that we find ourselves in. If you're in this room this morning and you do not know Jesus, then I want you to know that the feeling of longing that you have, longing for a world that is made right, longing for forgiveness for the wrongs you have done, longing for the smile and rejoicing of God over you, you do not have to wonder where those can be found. You're not like the psalmist wondering how God will bring about the restoration of all things. The answer to those longings is Jesus Christ. Come to him and find the forgiveness and peace and hope of God Almighty. If you are a Christian, if you do trust in Jesus, then you know the tension of Advent well. You exist in a world where you know that your redemption has come. Jesus paid it all. He has saved you from your sins and filled you with the Holy Spirit but you still feel like you are in exile. The fight against sin is a hard and relentless battle. You experience suffering and sadness and hurt. You know that God is with you, but He can still feel far off. Your cry to God for all of those things should still be, Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Because the day is coming when the light of Jesus will not just shine as a small, humble light in the darkness, not just as a quiet birth in a manger in Bethlehem, but His light will shine throughout the earth with a shout and the sound of a trumpet. He won't come clothed in humility, but clothed in glory. And He won't come to begin His work, but to complete it. And so with confidence and with hope, We await that day of restoration and salvation, and we cry out with Christians throughout the ages, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Would you all pray with me? Father, we do cry out that you would restore all things. We rejoice that we know where that restoration comes from. And so we pray that you would cause us to cling to Jesus, to look to Him and Him alone for our salvation and our life and our ultimate joy. We do pray that Jesus would come quickly to restore this world and to restore us. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.